You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Stay on your feet for a reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. So then remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross thus putting to death the hostility through it. So he came and he proclaimed peace, peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him, both of us have access to the one, to the spirit of the one Father, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the attention of our eyes and our hearts is on our screens. As we watch Russia's war with Ukraine continue, the the stories there are inspiring. Some of what we see is quite amazing and astounding. The resiliency of a group of people to stay together, to care for their families, to send them to safety, to bunker down against a relentless force. And yet we still struggle with a lot of concern too, wondering the sanity of all of this, of what's going on. How, how, How do we make sense of it? And we all long for peace. I mean, that's, that's what I'm praying for. I'm assuming that's what you're praying for too. The elimination of hostility, the bringing down of walls that, that separate people, that they come into conversation that leads to peace. But it's, it's really easy to have lots of questions and just wonder, how is it that we're supposed to deal with differences? I mean, some of you probably just turn it all off. Forget about it. i got enough difficulty in my own household. I can't find peace in my own house, let alone worrying about a war in a land that I have no control over. But we're wanting peace, peace that's near and peace that's far away. And especially in this project that we've been in, this God project, this series going through Ephesians, where the promise, the hope, the intention of God is that all things in heaven and on earth would come together in Christ. And so we wonder, where is that peace? Can we see it? And that's what I want us to explore today. That's what I want us to look at. You know, you might have noticed as we've looked at Ephesians, I haven't told you much at all about who they are or who the author is. I mean, if this is a story that we're jumping into and trying to be informed from, Who is it that writes this little letter that's supposed to mean anything at all to us? Well, we get a letter from Paul, and Paul is a Jew, a Greek-speaking, Hellenistic Jew, 
who writes to another group of Greeks. They're not Jews at all. They are Gentiles. And Paul, uh, oddly enough, has been calling them names. Now, we don't see it. We look at it, and there's lots of words that are easy to stumble over. We don't see all the names that Paul is calling this nice group of people. I mean, last week, he was talking about them being dead corpses. And I I still, I, I just don't feel like that's very courteous to just call a group of people dead corpses. But that's where he went. And this week, he calls them Gentiles. Now, Gentiles is not exactly a great term. I mean, it's, it's a term of insiders, Jews, referring to everyone who is outside the Jewish faith. I mean, there's, there's no land of the Gentile that you can find. No Gentile university. Not, nothing that groups this people together. It's just defining a group of people by who they're not. They're not insiders, and they're not Jews. It's kind of like uh, in terms of Russia. The former Soviet Union, the countries that are around Russia, they don't like being called Russians. And I've run into this long ago, uh, mistakenly calling an Estonian a Russian, or a Lithuanian a Russian, or a Ukrainian. No, 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 we are not Russian, we are Estonian or Lithuanian. It's similar, but a little bit different from the way sometimes we talk about Africa. Sometimes people in the Western white world will look and say, oh, are are you from Africa? Well, Africa is a continent, but it's not a country. So you probably would get a response of, no, I'm not from Africa, I'm from Ghana, or I'm from Egypt, or Sudan. And it's not a a country as much as it is a continent, a boundary of people that are gathered together. And so to speak about the Gentiles in terms of who they're not is kind of Not a nice thing to do. It's kind of a name that they don't really care about. Okay, that's fine, but that's not the term I'm using for myself. And then he gets to this description of uncircumcision. You are of the uncircumcised. Now, this is a little too graphic for church. I really apologize. I mean, you probably remember, or maybe you've heard in the 1950s, you couldn't even say things like the word pregnant on national television, let alone have a married couple that would have beds that were together. No, they had to be separate. So to talk about uncircumcision as a distinguishing marker for a group of people, that's a little too graphic, Paul, 2,000 years ago. A description between the cut and the uncut. And it's kind of this insider terminology for how you decide who's in and out based upon marking of the male genitalia. That just makes me uncomfortable. I mean, I still want to have a conversation with God. Do we not have a better way? I mean, some t-shirts, matching walking sticks, uh, some kind of ID badge. Really? This is what you told Abraham to do? And so Paul, he throws out this term that they are the uncircumcised, and it's kind of an insult. I mean, this group of Ephesians, they're not Jews. This is not like Galatia or Romans where they're wrestling with controversy between Jews and Greeks. They're not there. It's mainly just entirely Greeks. I mean, Paul knows this group of people. To tell you a little bit about who he's writing to, this place, Ephesus, is where he spent his longest missionary stay in his entire ministry. He stayed there three years. 
He showed up and he started speaking uh, in the synagogue to Jews. And after about three months, they said, we don't like what you're saying, go elsewhere. And so then he began lecturing in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And he did so every day for three years. He knows this group of people. There are all kinds of stories and acts about them burning a whole big pile of expensive magic books. There are stories of Paul laying hands on people who had not received the Holy Spirit. There are stories of Paul working amazing miracles. He knows this group of people, and he knows that there aren't Jews among them. It's not brought up elsewhere in the letter. It's not a controversy, but yet it's one that Paul is pushing to them. Why? I think Paul does it for a very important reason. He wants to let them know that they are outside of Israel. They're outside of the people of God, which seems like kind of a mean thing to do, to call all of these names and say, you are outside of Israel. But he does it for a particular reason. He does it for a reason of including them and bringing them into the promise of God. Take a look at verse 12. In verse 12, after he said all these graphic things about circumcision, that was kind of hard for me to even read through, you know, the first few verses there. In verse 12, he explains what it means to be a part of this uncircumcised group. And the very first thing he says is, you were without Christ. Now, now wait a second. If you're asking a Jew to describe what it means to not be a Jew, that's not the first thing they're going to mention. What they're going to mention is, well, you didn't have the law. You didn't have the covenant promises. And he mentions those things, but all of them come after, he says, you weren't in Christ. The point that I want you to get, in fact, the one point to take away from today comes from verse 13. Verse 13, in a nutshell, no pun intended, gives the message of this lesson. Let's look at it. But now, it took a while for some of you to, to catch that, but, you know, anyway. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ Jesus. The point of all this is not about exclusion of who's on the outside. The point is inclusion. If you talk to religious people, it doesn't have to be Jews. It can be Christians. We're all pretty good at guessing who's on the inside and who's on the outside. There are questions and games that are played. You know, even in the, in the Mormon faith, they might ask, hey, do you drink Dr. Pepper? A little test to see if this is a real Mormon who doesn't drink caffeine. A Catholic might say, well, well who's your priest in that town? Just, just a little test to see who's on the inside. In the Christian church, they might say, well, have you been baptized? All of these little games that are played to decide who's in and who's out. But for Paul, verse 13 tells us that what's most important, the most important defining characteristic is not your religion, it's not personal identifiers of any kind at all, it's being in Christ. It's your proximity to, your nearness to Christ. And we get the mission is about bringing all things together in Christ, which is what Jesus does, of bringing us those that are far away and those that are near in Christ Jesus. Well, there's three things that pop up that explain that verse 13. Three ways that Christ is expressed. 
First off, Christ is our peace. He's the answer. He's the one that can provide the elimination of hostilities. The picture that's described is of destroying walls that separate. And we've seen on our screens, haven't we? Tanks squaring off against tanks. Missiles being fired against people. Guns, people squared off against one another. And what's done by Christ is the elimination of those hostilities, the taking away of those things that separate us, that Paul tells us that shalom comes through Christ. Christ is our peace. So that's the first one. The second one is that Christ creates peace. He makes peace. In his body, Christ absorbs two different groups of people, all of the peoples, together into one. And he makes peace, one new humanity. So if there's steps here, the step one is, well, you destroy the barriers, you destroy the hostilities. Step two is you get the people together. And God in Christ has done that in the very body of Jesus, by the cross. Oh, wait, wait, wait a second. Christ brings us together through the cross? I mean, isn't that a hostility? That's a death penalty. That's a torture instrument. Are we supposed to use violence? I mean, think about the Russians again. The Russians have attacked. We come, we kill you. We kill your mother. We take your land. And now we're brothers. Now we're friends. That's a terrible accent. Doing. But, you know, you think about it. You come in, you attack, you kill, you destroy in order to make a group of people one. Is that what we're talking about here? No. God in Christ does the exact opposite. He allows the hostilities to be done to him. And in his body, he brings the two together. The difference is that God creates peace even as he's suffering from the sins of the world. At the height of our rebellion, killing the Son of God, it's in that moment that God is making peace and destroying sins. Christ is our peace. Christ creates peace and Christ proclaims peace. In verse 18. Christ is the message that we proclaim. A message of reconciliation that's for all humanity. It's a message that's for all. It's not just for insiders. It's not just for people that feel close to God. It's for people that feel far away from God. That message of reconciliation, that same inclusive message for Jews and non-Jews remains the same. The insider message is destroyed to be everyone being an insider, that in Christ we're all brought together. And so we get this summary that the access that we have to God is through Christ. Whether you're a Jew, he wants those ears to hear that, or a non-Jew, same ears are hearing. You are approaching God in Christ. Those near, those far are brought together. Christ is our peace. He creates peace. And he proclaims this message of peace. Okay, well, that's pretty straightforward, right? We take a breath here, and I'll say it's pretty easy to proclaim this message. I mean, what Christian is going to disagree with this? Is Christ our peace? Well, yes, that's what we need. It's kind of 
easy for us to proclaim this message. Few are going to disagree with it because everyone desires it. What's hard is doing it, applying it, or throwing up our hands and saying, okay, Christ, okay, God, why isn't it happening now? And so I want to I speak to us as Christians, as insiders. I can't really speak to, to outsiders on this message, so I want to speak to Christians. Because it's pretty easy for us, and you might need your flak jackets on, so if you don't already have your flak jacket on, put it on, because this is a message for us as insiders. It's pretty easy for us as Christians to just kind of sit back and cross our shoulders and say, you know, if the world would just get Christ, then we'd have peace. You've probably said it like I've said it, right? If we would just evangelize and get people into this life of Christ, then we'd have peace. I mean, it makes sense. It's not a bad thing. It's what we want. But it also kind of shuffles off puts off responsibility onto others, that it's really their problem. If they would just get Christ, if they would just be evangelized, and the problem gets shift off of ourselves and onto others, when this is a message that speaks to us, where peace begins with me and how I live my life. In Russia and in Ukraine, they are both Christian nations. I don't know the percentages, but they both have state religions, the Russian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. If even just the Christians would act Christianly in those countries, things would change. They have the same communion. They answer to the same ecumenical patriarch. Don't ask me to explain that. Weird stuff. It's a pope. Doesn't make sense to us Protestants, okay? But they have the same communion and yet they're not treating one another as Christians. For people to really believe the Christian message, they have to see us living it out. They have to see it inside of church with how we treat leaders, with how we raise people up who are the youngest among us to be people of faith. For the world to experience peace, they have to see it in our marriages, how we treat our spouse, how we talk about our spouse when our spouse is not around. If the world is to experience the peace that is defined in verse 13, of Christ bringing things that are near and far away, they have to see it in us in how we do business with one another. The world needs to see it. Well, I have a couple of rhetorical questions for you to think about to push this even further. So tighten the strap on your flak jacket a little bit. You know, if it might seem a little strange, at least it does to me, that if Christ's mission is about reconciling hostilities, why is it that Christians are about creating hostilities? Creating divisions. Have you noticed that? Christ's mission is about reconciling the world, and yet sometimes, as Christians, we're the ones causing the hostilities over differences, creating division. We're not really known as a group of people that are making peace. We're about Maintaining purity, encouraging division, warring with our opponents. We're, we're encouraged to, to fight for what we believe in. And so just think about any hot-button issue that you've got and think about leaders that are encouraging you to worry, to be anxious, to fight, to be upset, to be defensive, and to box people into easy answers on any of these hot-button issues. 
So that's, that's one rhetorical question to think about. The second one is, is similar, but it makes us think in a different way. Does our public Christian discourse, our public Christian action, eliminate hostility and division? I mean, that's one you almost have to sit with. Does the things, do the things that Christians say and Christian do, Christians do, do they encourage division or do they eliminate division? Do they bring about the reconciliation that God intends? Again, think about those issues that get you red in the face. What is our approach to differences? Do we seek to eliminate all of them? Come back again to the God Project's purpose. If the project of God in this world, the goal is to bring all things together into Christ, then isn't that the goal of Christians as well? Aren't we the people that are bringing all things together, being a part of the work that God is doing? And yet sometimes we're more driven by an issue than we are driven to love people. Think about it this way. Christians sometimes attack these issues not too dissimilar from the way Putin has attacked another country. The world stands by with Putin, for for example. And they say, okay, uh, you don't need to be doing this. This is not your land. These are not your people. This is not yours. And yet, he goes in and he attacks to dominate, to take over. No, this is ours. No, we're going to take this. Sometimes Christians want to take our answers that are good answers and determine them for everyone else and pass laws. And our goal is to conquer and to win and to force all into brothership with us, to see things as we see them. Do you feel that? And sometimes that's how a win is defined. Think about it. We Christians say, all right, we win if you get with me because I'm right I've got the truth, I know where we need to be going, and our goal is to conquer and to win any over any and other opponent. Okay, you probably say, well, I didn't see that coming. He's comparing Putin to Christians. It's not a good comparison, it's not a fair comparison. It's made to get us to think about how we sometimes approach our differences. If the goal in the God Project is to reconcile and gather all people together, to gather up what's broken, to heal what's ill, to gather those that are suffering, then how might that be our goal as well? How might we determine that a win means I'm going to work to introduce this person to God in a way that they've never seen God before? To actually see the love of God. The God who comes to us and has dealt with our sins and walked across the bridge of sinfulness, going through that sinfulness to bring us to the other side, will not be able to fix every issue. We'll not be able to provide the answer for every social problem that's in the world. But what we can do is what Jesus told us to do, to love one another. And our goal is the same as God's goal of bringing up all things together in Christ to reconcile them to the God that they may not know. And I think if we need somewhere practical to go, 
Does it not happen at the table? Does it not come at this table that welcomes all? Where it's not our table, we don't own it, it's the Lord's table. This, this isn't our bread, it's not our body that was broken, it's, it's the Lord's body. It's not, it's not our blood, it's not our juice, it's, it's the blood of Jesus. These represent for us the body and blood of Christ, a table to which all are welcome. I mean, I love this line in verse 13 of welcoming all, of bringing those that are far away and those that are near, because that, what, that is what Christ has done in his own body. The way God has dealt with sins, the sins that we would want to address in other people, the sins that we want to address in our brothers or in those outside of the faith, those sins have been dealt with the same way our own sins have been dealt with. By a God who is laser-focused on suffering in spite of our sinfulness, of going to his demise that wasn't an end, but only the beginning of what life looks like walking through the weight of sinfulness. Well, this is not an encouragement to be more passive, you know, to, to stop thinking about things, to not have an opinion, or to water down the evil that is in our world. But it's a change, it's a tweak, where our goal is about reconciliation, of bringing those that are far away near, and understanding that even those who are near to God need to be brought closer to God. It's a different goal, it's a goal of reconciliation where we are not trusting ourselves, but we are trusting the reconciling work of God in the world. Somewhat mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing to think about what God has done through Jesus. And to say it simply, in our, in our lives, maybe we just don't need to start wars. Wars over this or that. Because we think we've got the answer. Maybe instead we start reconciliation of drawing people into the love of God, of making them, by our own lives, be so compelled by this love of God that they are drawn closer to this God and want to be close to the God who's transcended heaven, hell, and all kinds of sin to be close to you. Let's pray. God, your work in the world is often a mystery to us. And so we join our voices with those across this world for peace. And we pray that we'll be a part of that peace. That we will join with you in the work that you're doing through Christ. To reconcile all things to yourself. We know that we don't have to fear sin. We know that things that don't have life and don't give life will go away. They will disappear. They will be transformed. And so, God, we surrender to you our sins. We confess them first and foremost before we point to the sins of others. And God, would you do your work in our life? Would you help us to see that what you did in Christ is not just a nice idea, but it is the model for us. It is the model for our way of living. And so we live and we pray through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.